It was a time in history that shaped a generation. But we're gonna be okay, right, Dad? Once I get to Chicago, I'll find a good paying job. You're leaving? I, Jack Kittredge, who solemnly swear that there is nothing that could ever keep me from coming back to you. I love you, Dad. The first theatrical motion picture based on the American Girl books. Dear Dad, here at home, things are hopping. The house is chock full of boarders, which keeps us pretty busy. There's the dance instructor. <gasps> it's so much more fun here. A magician, two hobo boys, a mobile librarian, and of course, Grace. And a monkey? <laughs> Every morning. Welcome everyone to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Allison, we're so excited to be gathered here today not to talk about a book, but to talk about a text that's like beyond speech, some might say, beyond words, and that's the Kit movie. We got to do something that a 10 or 11 year old Kit was probably only dreaming of at a certain point of the depression, which is popping on a great film, seeing Stanley Tucci at his zenith, question mark? Can't. I I still, like, we will get into this cast. I don't know what kind of deal with the devil Julia Roberts made as producer to make this cast happen. This we'll cast is per- This cast is perplexing. We are going to pull kind of like, there are Law and Order themes that will run through this episode because of how they chose to make the Kit movie that we can talk about because it is very much a mystery on multiple levels. But we have a kind of rip from the headline situation that we wanted to talk about first. Yes. And this is like, you know, we joke a lot on this show, but this is somewhat of a serious topic. So like hard pivot change, but just want to say like, In the community we've made on this show, we hope it's been really clear that we want to be as inclusive as possible. And we've always dreamed for the brand to be representative of, you know, everyone who in our world who wants to see themselves in these books and the dolls and everything they make. So, you know, our trans listeners, you're really important to us. We see you. And we're really sad about this controversy that's like blowing up in the American Girl community. Yes, it has really reached astronomical heights. And Part of why we wanted to talk about this is these books were really meaningful to us and we tend to focus on what we call the canonical historical books on this show because that is really what resonated with us. But a lot of people have told us of these important experiences they've had with things like The Care and Keeping of You and other books that American Girl started to produce. They had their own publishing line and those books continue to get made, which is really exciting because it means that people today have access to teams of experts who sit down and think about thoughtful questions that young people have asked them. And increasingly, some of those questions are about gender identity, which is what led them to make the most recent Smart Girls Guide, which has an entire section on that exact issue. Yeah, and this is what blows my mind, is you just reminded me off air that this book came out a full year ago. So I don't really know why this is popping up now. But essentially, conservatives have, you know, latched onto this book to say it's part of this ongoing conspiracy by trans people to force toddlers to change their gender identity, which is not what's happening here, to be very clear. That is not what these books are about. No, this book in question, this particular Smart Girls Guide, which again is part of a series and 
say whatever you want about American Girl. They have range. They have books that teach you how to do a French braid in your doll's hair, how to tie bows on your dog. And then they tackle these really serious questions. A lot of people have written to us that, you know, for example, becoming a person who would have periods was really stressful for them. And these books gave them a a guide, like a very direct guide, or learning how to get certain kinds of undergarments. This particular book has a section called Gender Joy, and it has a segment of an interview with Jazz Jennings where people are talking about where do you go to ask adults or trusted people in your life questions about gender identity and expression? And it acknowledges that trans people exist, that trans people are important, and that there might be mental health struggles that are happening among trans people disproportionately because of hateful environments. And so it's important that people actually look at the text and think about this as part of work that American Girl has been doing for decades. This is not some kind of random turn. It's, I think, a smartful way based on feedback to make sure that they're speaking to the whole range of people who might have questions for American Girl. Absolutely. And, you know, to give credit to American Girl, which this is an area where we've previously said they've been problematic, like Allison and I are old enough that we grew up with Karen Keeping a View, as did many of you. And you know, that was not a really positive book for trans people to read. It was not affirming. It didn't really kind of explain even the trans, any information for the trans community, any kind of affirming language. And so this is a major leap forward. And when this controversy broke out, the brand, to their credit, doubled down in affirming the content of this book, which I think is great. They have a line that says, your gender expression should make you feel at home in your body. And something that people have pointed out rightfully about past versions of caring, keeping of you is subtle fat phobia or not subtle fat phobia in those books, lack of disability representation. I think part of why we do this show is not just to reread books that we can reread in an afternoon, but to think critically and thoughtfully about distances between what we used to really like and what kind of speaks to us now. And it's been really exciting to see other people in the fandom, and we'll kind of focus on that, come forward and say that this is important to them too. So something I think to always keep in mind is once a year, right around the holiday season, there seems to be this manufactured controversy about something American Girl. Before it was Kira Bailey's aunts, there was controversy about Corinne Tan. It's this holiday season manufacturedness that kind of is tiresome, right? Like we've had this conversation multiple times around the holidays and this book has been out. So it's not as if someone rang a fire alarm in the middle of the night. It's been out and my only hope is that it's already helped people who are looking for questions to be answered. Yeah. And, you know, I would say I'm tired of this, but it's also like I am. It's so hateful. I mean, there is nothing at the core of this stuff than pure hate. Like, don't be don't be confused or distracted by people who say this is a conversation about language. It's not. It's about hate. And I hate that we're getting so much targeted 
bullying and just awful stuff online and everywhere towards the trans community, towards the queer community, um, particularly thinking about trans people of color, like so many people who are vulnerable and at risk. And particularly around the holidays, it can be really hard if you identify in any of those categories just to navigate popular culture, which seems to remind us more than ever when we don't seem to fit in those categories or into like mainstream air quotes culture, whatever that even means anymore. And so I think it's really strong that the brand reacted by affirming a community that deserves our support and respect and has been in our community forever. So, you know, just to say, like, if anyone out there has been having a hard time with this, like, you know, we just want to recognize that. And I'm sure it has been really difficult in ways we can't understand. But, you know, we also know that for folks who don't identify in those categories, it's important for us to speak about these things and for the brand to speak about these things. So we just wanted to kind of open the show just by acknowledging it. I also feel like if Kit were a real person, I don't know, that feels really strange to say because I think that she's real real? enough. You know, part of the lessons of these books long term are about like learning to speak. And we've talked a lot about how American Girl tends to put girls in positions to speak for others. So the point of this is not to speak over or you know, on behalf of other people, but just to say like what we're seeing and what we're kind of wanting to make sure that everyone understands that we're in support of and again to mark that distance between what this brand used to do and what people working for the brand are doing now i think honestly like go pick up one of these books or borrow one from the library hopefully you will be pleasantly surprised there are probably errors and issues that will become really clear to us soon enough but i think for now the brand saying that they support trans people who also love American Girl and want to feel comfortable in their bodies. That is a change. Yeah, and a really positive change. So, you know, we just wanted to kind of talk about that. And now we'll kind of transition to maybe less serious fare. But, you know, we this is a situation we take really seriously. And, you know, we're really honored to have so many trans listeners in our community. And we just want you to always feel seen by us. Um, even as Allison said, the point is not for us to be at the center of this conversation. Um, just a quick book recommendation that's not American Girl related, but if you like graphic novels, there's a, a really great book called Gender Queer. That's one of the books that's been banned by a lot of public libraries. And if you're just curious about this topic and want to learn more, that's a really great place to start as well. Um, Allison, you know, not on this topic, but thinking about other pop culture things we're taking in, you know, where are you at? What is rocking your world right now? So about a year ago, we took in Anderson Cooper's book about his family and being a Vanderbilt. And like, you know, not so subtle advertising that I keep hearing was telling me that Anderson Cooper got his reality show debut on The Mole, which happened to run until about the time that the Kit Kidridge movie comes out. I discover The Mole, you know, sort of like, I think innocently more than 20 years after its debut, thinking there's one season on Netflix wrong, but I am loving it. No one is who they seem on The Mole. I don't understand the point of this show, but I will watch a thousand hours of it. Also, I think I thought this was my idea. A listener told us multiple times to watch The Mole. Okay. And they I'm going right. to listen. I haven't seen it yet, but you've been raving about it and I'm going to I'm going to check it out. And I also just like it's so insane to picture someone as super serious as Anderson Cooper, like hosting a reality show of any kind and like approaching that conversation with participants with the gravitas that he's interviewing like victims of, 
you know, war and natural disasters or like things that I'm used to seeing him take on. So I'm interested. Is he still on or is this like, has he divested of the mole? Oh, he is long gone from the mole. Like he wow. has not been part of the mole since the Obama era. I think he was That's kind of sad. like taking, sad some, taking some time out or perhaps he saw a film that made him rethink everything. <sighs> certainly made us rethink everything. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. I will just say briefly, I'm watching, I just started watching Love Island, which has also been on for many years. So I just watched the most, I'm watching now the most recent season. So if anyone has any hot takes or tips, I'm early in it and it's kind of starting slow, but somebody, my coworker told me to stay with it. So I'm going to do that. But you know, we're just taking ourselves to a lot of great reality scenes. So I will have to check out the mole. But, you know, in some ways, like reality TV, though it's some of the most off the wall plot lines you've you ever did see, could anyone have guessed the plot or understood the plot to this movie? No, um, this film was rated G, but I think it needed to be rated R because I really feel as though you need to be an adult to actually like consume Kit Kittredge and American Girl. I just was not prepared. I, there is no way to emotionally, spiritually prepare for this. I think we just have to dive right in. So I'll give us a little bit of some background. This movie came out in early July, 2008. uh, Not long before like the world was about to change in like a pretty serious way, I think. But Kit Kittredge, played by Abigail Breslin, is a girl growing up in Depression-era Cincinnati. She has a nose for news and a knack for picking up strays. When a crime spree hits the Ohio City, all evidence points to the local hobo community, particularly Kit's friend Will. She recruits her friends, Ruthie and Sterling, to sniff out the real thief, but the children uncover a plot that reaches far beyond Cincinnati. I'm going to say my first reaction. Okay. Okay, let's hear it. I think this is a film about normalizing the apparatus of the FBI. Okay, I'm listening. (laughs) Because really, it's about the limits of existing structures to deal with interstate crime. I think that that's real. I think that that's real. And I also think the film is pointing to problems in police investigatory procedures And I think that in some ways, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, Anne Peacock, if that is your real name, which it does not (laughs) sound like it is, who wrote this movie, why is it that Val Tripp (laughs) is more radical than you in telling the story of Kit Kittredge? Because Val's Kit, as we just recall, went to jail, broke out of jail, openly protested and yelled at the police. And that's how we end the books. Like, she comes out of that not pro-police. Like, she's very critical of the justice system. This movie completely does a 180 on that. And we should say, this was pitched, like, I've joked about, it's a movie that feels like a movie, just to, like, bring Harry Styles Harry into in, it. of course. But this got a Roger Ebert review, right? Like, this was treated as something that went to the cinema, like, a lot of money. This is a very star-studded film that we'll talk about. Roger Ebert... Like, he was not playing when he wrote, she's a doll, but not just a product. And Damn. his major kind of contribution to this discourse is saying, like, this film surprised me because it wasn't just product placement. Like, he is in love with this film because it far exceeds his expectations. I came into this expecting gold, and I'm not sure what I got. 
I think that there's something, you have to come to this movie from a particular point of view. So we will get into the actual film in a second. And I just want to say before I watched, I consciously did not look up one thing. Mm -hmm. I knew that Abigail Breslin was Kit. That's it. That is all I knew. So I think if you came into this movie and you were like, I've read the books, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember the plots at all. Or I've never read the books, but I'm interested. I think you would have a great time at this movie. I had a great time regardless, but I had many questions because we literally just read all these books. So I feel like Roger went in and was like, listen, I have two eyes, one heart, two thumbs <laughs> way up. Like I'm I'm in this and I get where he's coming from, but I feel like he could come from that point of view because I guarantee you he did not sit down and read all six books. Cause then he would have been like, guess what guys, there was a theft in the theater last night and in this movie. And Valtrip was robbed of her plot lines, of her themes. Like, we've done a real 180 here. Again, I had a great time. I laughed. I was, like, screaming at the TV at different times. I took my own movie of my favorite scene, which is a nonverbal scene that I already told Allison about. <laughs> but, like, there's so much going on where I'm like, you guys didn't need to go this hard. And no. yet you did. And I just, like, I have so many questions. Once again, and I think that that makes a difference, though, than Julia Roberts' other produced films yes. in this universe. Felicity, I feel like you couldn't really appreciate that movie unless you read the books. Like, it would be indecipherable to you. I think that the target audience for this was grandparents or great-grandparents or people with depression-adjacent memories and life experiences taking younger people to the movies and kind of further reinforcing right as Netflix was coming out that going to the movies was a valuable experience, right? Like our girl Kit loves the movies. This is like a meta, like you will also love the movies. One of yes. the things that Ebert says is, if you have or know or can borrow a girl or a boy who collects the American Girl dolls, grab onto that child as your excuse to see this movie. You may enjoy it as much as they do, maybe more. And I was really struck by that because I was going back and forth constantly. Is this a movie made for a multi-generational audience or is this a movie made for kids? Because I think there's always a big difference for me in my level of enjoyment. And I really couldn't land on who this movie was for. Like, why was Joan Cusack in this film, if not for the adults? She was there for me, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> but I screamed when she came on screen, because again, I didn't look it up, so I didn't know what... We, truly, the cast of this movie is insane. But I agree with you. I think in some ways, this movie was really produced for the parents and for the grandparents and people who... I don't know, like romanticize that like young kids should read Nancy Drew, that like there's yes. some there's something about classic mysteries or like those that structure that kids will really respond to and they'll resonate with. But making that choice and leaning into a mystery, in this case, the mystery of who stole all of their borders and the family's possessions that were held in a lockbox, which, by the way, is not in the books at all, that that would be more meaningful than telling a story that really follows Kit, the person, through her personal acceptance of the changes in her life wrought by the Great Depression. Like, that story is kind of gone. Like, we're not really telling that story. So somebody made a calculation that was like, we will sell more movie tickets if it's less about history and more about mystery. That was definitely the calculus. And I think part of it was the brand at the time was really pumping a lot into the mystery books and was trying to show like, um, we're not mm -hmm. just about like a six book character arc. We're about world building and we can kind of do anything. 
what I think my biggest difference that I had a hard time getting over because we just just read the books and I wouldn't have felt this way any other time in my life was the difference between the appearance of Kit's family still being very well off through the entire film and the way that the books drops us into a situation where her life changes quickly and constantly. And that's something that I really loved and admired about the books. There is a scene in this film where there's no Aunt Millie, first of all, crime number one. The family I can't has, even talk about that. We can't talk about it because that would have been dream casting. The Joan Cusack character is a mobile librarian who can't drive. I mean, icon. I did think, though, so when this movie started and you get the actors' names on the screen, I was like, this can't be real. When it was like <laughs> Stanley Tucci and then Julia Ormond, who I know from Sabrina, classic mm-hmm. remake with Harrison Ford, and Legends of the Fall, and I forget what else she's been in, but like, we're talking real 90s queen here. And I'm like, oh my God, they got her? Then I'm like, Joan Cusack, what? Like, speaking of missing people, like, where the hell is Joan Cusack? Why is she not in everything? I love her. So I'm like, okay, is she going to be Aunt Millie? That's what I'm telling myself going into this. And then she's the mobile librarian who can't drive. And I'm like, what is the point of this? Although it did make me think about that TikTok that you've probably seen where somebody's like, or maybe it's a tweet, where someone's like, I would never be one of those people who could be lured into a van by a stranger. And then it's like, unless, and then it's a picture of the mobile book club book <laughs> yeah. um, van open. But, you know, that was a weird choice. Also, Stanley Tucci's character. So this film decided to really lean in on what would be considered minor characters or non-existent characters in the book. And Sterling and his mother are kind of used as, especially the mother, as like boring opposites of everyone else like there's all these cool people who are staying there boarding jane krakowski plays someone who's like a dancer question mark and you're sort of supposed to believe all she's these just pe- yeah desperate like, to get married there's all of these people living in the house and my question to all of them is how are you affording even meager rent like we have mm-hmm. jane krakowski playing a dancer question mark we have stanley tucci playing mr jefferson jasper renee burke aka magician I'm sorry, is there much call for magic during the Great Depression? (laughs) How is he able to afford any rent? And Joan Cusack, Miss Lucinda Bond, she's the librarian. Like, this cast of characters, I'm like, where did these people drop in from other than central casting? It's very interesting, too, because there was a music element among the boarders in the books, but the other characters were nurses. And it's sort of like one of the most interesting differences between book and movie for me. There's so many scenes around the dinner table with the boarders and Kit kind of either being really interested or not interested in what they have to offer. And the adults in this film, like the adult boarders, like really take up a lot of space. And yet I found the presentation of Sterling to be among the most like affecting in the film because he has so many wins. Like when Kit is being bullied, he gets back at the bully you have this amazing scene where you understand what he's done to help his mother feel like she's getting money. And one of the final scenes of the film is him meeting a man who's detached from his family who reminds Sterling of his own father. And he says, like, promise me you'll write to your son. Like, promise me that you'll do Yes. So Sterling comes out as this kind of 3D character What I think I found striking about Kit from the opening scene is this is a girl boss movie. Like, Kit is barely 11 years old, and she's like, I will have a job. 
Yeah, and you almost don't get that it's not from a place of like, I love writing and my dream is to be a reporter. I mean, it's partly that, but it's more like what we end up seeing is her barreling into the newspaper office, like literally seen one or two of this movie. Mm-hmm. Charlie never appears in the film, so he's even more MIA in the film than he is in the books. And he's like, yeah, you just get a voiceover that's like, my brother Charlie connected me with someone at the Cincinnati paper. And she like barrels in and is like, I need to see the editor. I have a piece on the Chicago World's Fair. Like, show me the editor. And they're like, that's not going to work out for you. And it's just like you, the thing that's driving her, the thing that they most want to communicate, it feels like is ambition and not the joy of the thing about which she's ambitious, which I think is a different thing. And I think it would have been more meaningful to actually see her in the attic or in her house, like developing a story and like her excitement when no one's watching. Because part of the beauty of the books is she loves doing this for the joy of doing it. And Uncle Hendrick calls her out on that in the last book. And this book just totally like takes that for granted, I think. I think everyone was given a pep talk. Like there are no minor parts in this film. And every single person was like, okay, got it. Like memo noted. We meet Mill, uh, Will, sorry, really early. And Will has a companion named County. And we're not like super sure what their deal is or like how they've come to be there. But Will is with us the entire time, and a lot of this film is really based around, like, Will showing Kit the truth of, like, the community of traveling people around them. One of the opening lines of the film is, hobos, we cannot trust them. And Kit has this investment, as you say, in, like, changing people's minds about hobos, but you're, like, also not really sure why. Yeah, I I feel like one of the biggest changes the filmmakers made is that they were like, we are going to fight the war on hobos. Like that is like the thing that's at the core of the kit stories is that there is a public suspicion of hobos and we're going to show that mom and everyone else is totally on the right side of that and they will be pushing back in ways big and small Mom will offer Will and County food in front of her garden club. And in bigger ways, Kit's going to apparently solve a crime for which a hobo is falsely accused. But it's like, (laughs) I'm sorry, like, where is this coming from? Like, that is not the core thing of the books. Like, yes, hobos are in there. And excuse me, hobo culture. But it's not like it's on this child or like there's this sense of like hobos (laughs) are hugely discriminated against. Like, everybody, please, like, take this seriously. It's like that is that was not what I left the books with. I'm laughing because I think of books like the Addie books or the Rebecca books, which take on very serious issues, you know, such as racism and anti-Semitism. And the way that this book presents the hobo culture, I do think it was to avoid a conversation about any kind of ethnic group or racial group or gender. And it was like, hobos are the number one discriminated class, full stop. I do feel like this film was made by a fortune teller who was like the subprime mortgage crisis will take us yes we have to have a lot that is like quietly pro banking institutions and pro fdr without really going there and we have to make sure that people know that it's okay to be poor but not really like they shouldn't get comfortable with that and i think like the moment that this came out there really is such a big difference to me between Valerie Tripp's Kit, who I think is just like a phenomenal character who resolves conflict with friends, who grows as a person, who develops a very real strong muscle for empathy. The treehouse that Kit is in in this film is nicer than I'll just say it like where either of us live. 100%. There were stained glass windows. I literally had to pause the movie at that point when there, there's like a shot of her where behind her is a stained glass window. 
And I paused and I was like, are you, I was like, wait a second, are we back in the house? And then I realized (laughs) like, no, we are in the treehouse. I was like, my God, like, what was the conversation like in this set where they were like, the set designer was like, low key, like they're poor now, but she still has the stained glass in her treehouse because, you know, you have to hold on to beautiful things. Like, even if you're poor and it's like, but I don't know, I I really don't know what the conversation, no, that's the thing. It's like, there's conversations around her being poor but there is no poverty and there's no shaming either. You don't see her getting shamed really. Even the scene that's in the books that is in the movie of Roger being like, your dad lost his job and he was at the soup kitchen and now you're gonna have to wear a flower sack dress. She was like, you know, quickly Sterling, you know, intervenes and makes him the butt of the joke, so to speak. But other than that, there's no real moment where Kit's like, oh wow, we're poor. And like really experiences her life changing that we see. She watches as a friend, Florence Stone, as her house is being taken away by the bank. And there's this visceral moment where they drag the family's furniture out. There's a doll like thoughtfully placed on the bed. And it's traumatic because Florence is part of the club in the treehouse. It's so different from the really affecting scene where Kit overhears her best friend's father talking to her family about possibly losing their house. And the critical decision that Kit makes to not have a cool tree house and instead to modify their home further so that they can take in more tenants. There was something almost like Ryan Murphy-esque about this particular boarding house where it's like everyone has an eccentric skill and you are going to know about it. You're going to hear about it. <laughs> and and basically like anything that might remind you of something that's not entertaining but just sad is going to only be offered as exposition to later explain how Kit solves the crime. Mm-hmm. For example, like Kit's family loses their telephone line. Um, that's in the books. But instead of it being like, whoa, we don't have a telephone anymore. Like, this is so sad. Things are going downhill. Instead, she's like, later, she's like, wait a second. When Joan Cusack's character is like, oh, I'll call- I called the police. Now let's go. And later she's like, but how could she have called the police? We don't have a <laughs> telephone anymore. And it's like, okay. But as you're saying, like, we are treated to approximately three to four magic shows scenes. <laughs> yes. In the House by Stanley Tucci, who can we just say, like, how is Stanley Tucci in this movie? I'll just say this. We've been to a magic show that was almost identical to the show that we see in this film. <sighs> Although I will say the one in the film did have more successful completion <laughs> of tricks. I genuinely felt bad for that guy because he he kind of was, like, standing himself in a way. Maybe he was feeling insecure and nervous. Like, I get it. But he was like, I go to Vegas everywhere. Every year to a convention for magicians. Like, I teach magic. And we were like, whoa, cool. And he <laughs> attempted to do, like, a brass ring, like, you know, yes. joining the rings and separating them. Didn't work. And then I forget what the other trick was that didn't work. And I was like, I genuinely felt anxious for him. And I was like clapping extra hard when he did land the plane, so to speak, because I was like, I just feel invested now. Like now I'm, I guess, his coach. Like, I don't know what happened that night. This magician truly was a master of misdirection in the film because he got us to not ask questions about Aunt Millie. And I think part of why certain characters and plot lines are totally dropped out is they would be reminders or plot devices to show that the family is poor. For example, we have no conflict ever between Ruthie and Kit. Why would we? Because things haven't really changed that much for Kit, right? Like, Mm. there's no conflict over the dress. We don't have any of the conflict that comes up with Aunt Millie or the, you know, quote, embarrassing birthday party scene because... Why was Aunt Millie not there? Nothing has changed, right? But Aunt Millie would have been there 
to bail the family out. I do think this is a message about like, there are no bailouts. There are no Aunt Millie's. There is (laughs) just a mortgage crisis. Get used to it. It's a mortgage crisis. And we're going to tell you nominally that there's no shame in being (laughs) poor. And yet we're simultaneously going to show you things that seem to suggest there is shame in being poor. Yeah, no bailouts, no family, extended family networks. It's sort of also a commentary on like, in some ways they made her family more nuclear in a millennial way than it would have been then, where it's like extended family are completely out of the frame in a way that they likely could have been an available network at that time. Also, dad is gone. Dad leaves. Dad leaves, just like Sterling's dad. We do hear from him periodically, but he's sort of embarrassed. I thought I was paying enough attention. Like, I don't really understand what dad was doing. I think dad has a lot to answer for because he got his car waxed and cleaned like a day before they lose the dealership. And it's like, what are we doing? What was the thought process? I know. I thought that too. (laughs) Chris O'Donnell plays the dad, by the way. And at different times when he left, I was like, why are we, why is he leaving? And then genuinely, I was like, do you think he was filming NCIS, whatever his version is? And he was like, look, I'll give you like a week. And that's about it. But he goes because he says that he can find a job in Chicago. And I'm like, in what way? And then when he comes back, (laughs) it's like so it's so unsatisfying because he comes home and Julia Ormond is like crying and is like, oh, my God. And then he's like, I'm just going to get a job here, right here in Cincinnati. And it's like, what the hell were you doing in Chicago? (laughs) We could have done that. What were we doing? I could have told you that. That was a classic American girl maneuver. It felt very much like Molly, how Molly needed to be reunited in the film with her father and how that would be sort of the emotional climax. I did find the character of Miss Bond, like we just have to talk about Joan Cusack in this role, to be one of the most fascinating we've seen. Of course, it evokes you're a virgin who can't drive, right? Miss Bond, you're a mobile librarian who can't drive. Why? And I think that there's something actually, and I am not just like trying to pick this film apart because it gave me some good laughs. I enjoyed it. There's something very funny and I think very early 2000s about making a mobile librarian an incompetent person. And what I mean by that is like what that woman would have had to go through to Mm -hmm. get that gig would Mm -hmm. have been mind blowing. And I highly recommend like if this isn't like if you're like a normal person and you're like, I don't know about this, look up the Tuskegee mobile librarians and like the actually like life-changing work that they did, like bringing libraries to the people during the depression, especially in certain Southern contexts, making her a goof. I think part of that was Joan. And I think part of that was a diminishing of the amazing journey she would have had to take to, to get that credential. Yeah, I totally agree. Like Anna has been working on and off on this like family history project for a while of like she had these great aunts who many of whom chose not to marry because they wanted to focus on their professional lives. And one of them became a mobile librarian in Kentucky and they were from Pennsylvania. So it's not like it was the area she grew up in. So it was like this was a very intentional life choice to be like, I'm going to library school. I'm moving to this state where I know no one because my whole life is going to be this work that I find like real value in. And I think she ended up getting married later, but like most of their life is not around like that part, that choice. So to make this character not only a mobile librarian, but someone who's like morally suspect because her head has been so turned by Stanley Tucci, her (laughs) secret boyfriend, which like I get if that's your jam. But it's also like, it's just so bizarre. I was like, 
I guess in a weird way too, you could say it's interesting because they're upending, like usually librarians are depicted in very virtuous ways mm. or like as nerds, which like no judgment, but um, so maybe they were like, we're gonna try to do something different with a librarian, but I don't know. Also, it's like that there's the Joan Cusack factor. Like anytime she's in anything, <laughs> like I was saying to you before, she just makes the weirdest choices that make me like laugh. And she's so memorable because she does so much with often so little. Like she was in Adam's Family Values. She wears a neck brace in one of, one of the 80s movies. And it's just sort of like bopping around in a way where it's like your eye is just automatically drawn to her. And she's very good with like physical comedy. So my favorite scene was when she, they probably were like, we need you three to run over that hill. <laughs> yes. When they're trying to find the kids and we'll get into like what the actual mystery was, but she's trying to escape. And now Stanley Tucci and this other guy just like run over the hill. And she does this thing where she like waves her arms in a way that I was like cackling. I was like, this is so bizarre as a choice, but I'm like, God, why isn't she in everything? I don't know. but. In a way, I was like, she's going to be important to the story because they wouldn't cast her unless this is going to be meaningful. She is great casting. The other great casting choice was Willow Smith as County. And I will say, I think one of the emotional high impact moments of the film, which was really also a credit to Joan Cusack's character to Miss Bond, was we learned that County is able to learn how to read during their kind of like brief residency at this boarding house and that I think was like a beautiful thing when young Willow Smith says I can only read hobo I (laughs) burst out laughing because I was so like I wasn't ready for that line I wasn't ready for that like comedic delivery she's honestly great in that film and by the way is pretending to be a boy for almost all of it that's like part of the safety so instead of that being hit something she does something that county does one of the other things that felt very early 2000s to me about this film is upon learning that there is a hobo code will and county start to show ruth uh ruthie and kit all the different hobo codes in the area and you immediately learn that like ruthie's family is not nice because the only credit that they have is that they have good garbage. And I thought that was kind of like a fun social commentary. Yes. But again, Millie Erasure. Yes, and I wonder, like, we were talking before about, let's get into, like, the actual mystery in this film, which is, I think, in some ways ripped from the headlines, like, hear me out. So what ends up happening is, in a very convoluted way, we're at magic show number one or five. (laughs) I can't even tell at this point. And Stanley Tucci is like performing nightly for his boardroom roommates and the family. And you're like, wow, that's so nice. He's sharing his talent. Wait a second. After one of them, conveniently, they start talking about break-ins that that are happening around town, allegedly by a hobo, leading to more hobo hatred. And Julia Ormond, aka mom, is like, oh, we have a lockbox where we keep valuables. And um, Sterling's mom is like, oh, can you put like my wedding ring in there? And Sterling's like, but it's your wedding ring. And she's like, shh. And Stanley (laughs) Tucci is like, oh, can you put my, I forget what, watch or something. Everyone is like giving mom the valuables, which she also lets us know the money for their mortgage Mm -hmm. is also in the lockbox. Big surprise, then the lockbox gets stolen. And Ruthie's parents also get robbed, but I don't care about that. But the lockbox <laughs> gets stolen from mom and the family. And then suddenly it's like, that's why we're going to lose our house because we can't pay our mortgage because our lockbox was stolen. To me, I'm like, did these people, when did the bling ring happen? Because 
Did Ann Peacock literally just say, what if instead of Lindsay Lohan and company being the villains that basically no one in 2008 is sympathetic towards, like, what if I bring the bling ring to 1934? I think there was division on the staff. I think there was, like, proletariat members who were, like, down. There's an interesting moment where mom says not all hobos, and we learn that, quote, (laughs) the crime wave has been, quote, attached to the hobos. I think that that's, like, a part of this. Are the hobos a stand-in for mortgage lenders and their dirty deeds? Um, I wouldn't be surprised by that. And, you know, in some ways, like, where's Julia Roberts in this? And, mm-hmm. you know, I do think it's notable that of all the things that get dropped out of the book, something that doesn't is Kit showing up to school in the flower sack or the feed sack dress. And that, to me, shows me that, you know, I don't, I've been listening on and off to the new season of Articles of Interest, the podcast about fashion history, and they're doing a whole season on pre- um, preppy clothes now. But one of the people on the first episode says, an outfit is a sentence. Mm. Um, and I feel like Julia Roberts understands this because, as you probably recall, when she wanted to marry Danny Motor, possibly around this time or maybe like 10, eight years previous to this movie, she, Danny Motor's husband wouldn't grant a divorce and her name was Vera. So Julie Roberts made a t-shirt that said, Alo Vera, mm-hmm. and let the paps take pics of her wearing it. By the way, last week she wore a dress with covered in photos of George Clooney to present him with the Kennedy Center honor. So, I mean, this is a woman who understands like <laughs> closed tell stories. So I love that she looked at Kit and was like, the feedback thing stays, but also makes like, the villain or the robber wears shoes that have a star on the sole mm-hmm. so that it marks the ground. And it's like, are she saying like, you know, the robbers aren't the stars here? Or like, maybe they are like the theft. I don't know. Like maybe the people robbing the families, like they're not the stars we think they are like banks and mortgage lenders and the government. They're not to be lauded here. There's also an interesting moment and another difference between the books and this where in the books, Kit is already a big fan of Nancy Drew and Robin Hood. Those are like her heroes. That's like part of her character development. In this series, Miss Bond introduces Robin Hood and then there's kind of this commentary of the people who are, you know, committing these robberies. Like they're actually not doing Robin Hood type behavior. It's like they're stealing from the rich and the poor and keeping it. (laughs) right that's a line in the film um when you see the headline like hobo's not guilty like so many (laughs) moments in this film just made me think like hobo is carrying a lot of weight for like actual issues in our society and i'm not saying that there was not discrimination against hobos but i think the way that this came together and like the issues that we have in this country with like ignoring unhoused people, right? It's a really kind of fascinating commentary. And maybe I didn't take it for what it was, which was meant to be like a delightful romp among boarding house people. But you had to pay attention to this film more than I would have expected. Yes. Yes, you did. And I certainly did because I was trying to like, I was in way too deep on this movie, but I think to your point about like the unhoused and like thinking about homelessness as an issue, like in this movie, hobos are like everywhere and nowhere. Like in some ways it reminded me of um, Undercover Boss where mom is the undercover boss of this episode where she's like, hey guys, like Will and County arrive when she has her garden party when things are still good, which seemingly doesn't change for her. We don't see that moment where she has the garden party and like can't serve stuff or is struggling. 
And she very like gallantly in front of the other ladies is like, here, have some sandwiches, like, you know, whatever. And I just kind of feel like we see her giving them token rewards, but there's no systemic solution to this problem, which like, frankly, not much has changed on that issue down to today. But, you know, like you don't even know where these two sleep. Like, I have no idea watching the movie, like all movie long. I was like, so are they in the house? Like, are they sleeping under the stars? Like, cause they're there the whole movie. They are there the entire movie, and it is quite different where, you know, Kit has undergone a personal evolution in the books by the time she meets Will, right? And County mm-hmm. is an invention of this film. And I think, honestly, a good one, right? I think a great addition to yes. the story and an important part of the film. But to your point, like, there aren't those kinds of conversations. The note where the the family basically says, oh, yeah, Will, in the books, like, you can kind of sleep anywhere on the floor, to me, was one of the greatest moments of showing how much their own standards had changed, right? Like, that even keeping up appearances, they weren't able to do that. I think they wanted Will to have Ben energy, like Ben from the Felicity movie, where it's like, he's sort of maybe like a boyfriend type we end the film with Kit writing this kind of like expose about the hobo community. It was so shocking to me, though, like the way that the editor responds. He's like, you're an amazing writer. And I was like, in some ways, this was like ripped from the uh, like unconsciousness of every like 10 or 11 year old child who just like wants validation from an adult. That said, like, what are they doing? Like, what is happening at this newspaper? It was insane. And I, I couldn't follow really any of what was happening in that. Like, what were they producing? You just see him like <laughs> stewing a lot where he's like, I want the real story. Like, I want what's really going on. And she's like, well, I got it. I have what's really going on. And he's like, you don't. And everyone's just like yelling at each other. <laughs> it was really strange. And you're like, what? It was like sort of like Watergate where I was like, what's going on? Like, you're trying to uncover something and she thinks she has. And... He's never satisfied until he hits on Jane Krakowski in the last scene. May Dooley, who is a dancer, question mark, and they have this interesting exchange at the family Thanksgiving party, which turns into like a broader community party, which I actually really loved, where he says, like, you remind me so much of my mother. And she's like, that's right. That's she's why like, I'm like, you know it. Good if, for you. If there was ever a scene crying out for a performance of Muffin Top, like, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would have like been a beautiful. Nice- a nice like dinner time performance of something like that. I have to say, like, I enjoyed this film a lot. There were just so many surprises. I've been reading some of the additional kit mysteries and I see where like hmm. different threads are kind of pulled out or pulled through. I am still very surprised by like the lack of the Aunt Millie type character, simply because I think she wouldn't have fit, but we sometimes get attached to these characters that we really love and then it's hard when they're just like dropped. Yeah, it is hard. I I think like her absence makes sense for the story they probably wanted to tell. But at the same time, yeah. I mean, I went on IMDb and was reading the trivia after it was over. And the most fascinating part to me that I'm also sort of incredulous at is they said, the costume department made use of vintage photographs by Dorothea Lang and old Sears robot catalogs for creating the cast clothing. And they spent, um, as the family would spend less on extra clothing, the costumes were distressed using sandpaper and a chemical to make them feel aged and worn out. And I'm like, I didn't really get that vibe from the costumes. 
I don't think that that maybe came through as much as it could have. I think it was like really hard except for the scene where Kit is briefly bullied by the classmate to notice really any kind of difference in her life other than the fact that you know her father doesn't have a job. Her uncle is still criticizing their decisions and her brother is away. But even, even in a family conversation about that, they kind of have an argument or a bit of like discord over like that Charlie isn't going to skip college. He just had to defer college, you know, like that need to have the appearances up kept and to believe that they're going to go back to a very comfortable life. That's never shaken this entire film. Not for me. No, not for me either. The only thing that upset me in the movie is when she's in the soup kitchen and she sees her dad, she's holding an entire bread basket and she just drops it. And I was like, excuse me. I really sincerely hope you did not drop that bread all over the floor, ma'am. That bread is gone. Um, you know, no. Abigail Breslin was a pretty well-established actor by the time she did this. She was in No Reservations with Catherine Zeta-Jones. She Classic. was also in Little Miss Sunshine, which is one of my of favorite films all time, as well as Air Buddies, question mark. <laughs> did you know that she has a musical career? Excuse me? I did not know that. Um, I don't know if it's possible for legal reasons, but she had a very complicated breakup at some point, and there is a lot of speculation. If you've ever wondered, like, wow, I wonder if that girl from Little Miss Sunshine, like, wrote a Taylor Swift-type song. She has a ballad, question mark, called You Suck, and (gasps) it's about someone she dated who is also a pop star, and there's a lot of speculation This is one of the lines. I bet you're going to hear this song. I bet you're going to sing along and tell your friends how I'm obsessed with you. Like, she's basically wearing a red scarf. Oh, my God. Wait, who did she date? Um, There is is rampant speculation about who this song is about. And she says that it's not who people think it's about. Um, I am looking back at the band right now. It's it's not uh, not one that I'm super familiar with. Hold on one second. This is shocking. Abigail Breslin. She also was in one of my favorite films of all time, favorite books as well, My Sister's Keeper, right after doing this. Oh, that's right. She's had quite a career. She just did Scream Queens not that long ago with Ryan Murphy. So I'm happy that she she seems to have made that transition to adulthood um, professionally. But wow, you suck. It's like she walked so Olivia Rodrigo could run. Like, God bless. A few days ago, Abigail Breslin released a music video for You Suck, a song that she wrote about five seconds of summer guitarist Michael Clifford. Apparently, they dated in 2013, which is news to me. This is (laughs) written by Emma Lord in Bustle. In any case, the relationship must have ended badly. She has, Abigail Breslin has come out and vehemently denied this, but it is hard to know. Who can say? You know what? Good for her. Like, I mean... I love this for her. I mean, I love that the kind of the fire she has embodying Kit seems like it's based in her own (laughs) life. And I will just say as an apology to her, it's like, you know, the devil works hard, but Kit's wig works harder. Like she deserved a better wig. wig? Yes. Oh Oh my God. It's a bad wig. She deserved a much better hairpiece. 
for this production. And I'm just calling out for that retroactively. Can we Photoshop it? She deserves a better wig. There was something about this film that I also found disorienting, which is not a problem with the film, but something I thought about a lot while reading the books. There's kind of a back and forth, I would say, in the Molly books and the Kit books as to whether these families are actually comfortably in some kind of suburbia or some other kind of community. Like when you learn about Kit's family actually like growing and like changing the garden from being decorative to useful. When people are getting chickens, it feels highly disruptive. Joking aside about her treehouse, if they actually live in a suburb, she had no right to have a treehouse of that size. It truly is a tiny house in a tree. And so much about the scene setting, it didn't feel like how this family would have actually lived at all. It looked like a modern suburb that they made into a set. I think that's right. I looked it up and they filmed this in Toronto, which is also interesting. So, I mean, you know, it's American Girl, but she's a Canadian queen. I mean... That's what we're dealing with on the ground. Um, yeah, I agree. It did seem like more of a modern suburb. I mean, suburbs were kind of teeing off in this period, so it sort of could be feasible, I guess. But yeah, it it didn't seem that treehouse was a shock, and also that we have a treehouse society which we have not touched on, which is no. also kind of from nowhere, where she's requiring people to put their hand in a bowl of water and take an oath, and there's a lot going on with that. I would say that this version of Kit was giving, like, future cult leader by a lot. (laughs) Like, I love the way that she was like, we have memorabilia. And there was a wall. There was a lot of rituals, like, some of which were interrupted by, like, a housing eviction crisis. But overall, like, I would give this 9 out of 10. I would recommend it. I don't think that having pre-knowledge of Kit helps or is needed. Yeah, I think this is the the American Girl film I would most recommend to someone who has never read an American Girl book but wants to catch a vibe <laughs> of something like what this is all about. You know, I, I'm a huge mystery lover myself. I do think it was fun. Like, I really enjoyed watching it. I agree, 9 out of 10. Everyone who's in it is all in. Like, yes. there are people who are locked in in, this, in their roles. Like, they're not taking this lightly, even though they're probably like, you know, I could see Stanley Tucci being like, I'm doing this so my daughter will be impressed or something. Like, I don't really know what his situation was at this time. But, yeah, it was it was good. It was fun. But I kind of just, like, I think where I'm feeling negative about it is that I think it's just one of those situations where, again, I'm going to sound like a cliche, but the books are just so good that I have to, in my head, just be like, this is a completely different thing. Like, I have to tell myself her name is Mitt. Like, yeah. this is a completely different character. <laughs> like, Mitt seems cool. Mitten's the mystery solver. Like, she <laughs> seems cool. But the Kit books are, like, they're it for me. Like, I really love it. And I love that it does have that positioning of, like, questioning authority all the way through the books, which I think Valerie Tripp is into and makes space for. And that's how we could grow up to make a show like this where we question American Girl itself. These movies are basically, like, fall in line, don't ask, you know, I don't know. I think that, you know, there are other things in the fiction world, such as, you know, the League of Their Own remake or a League of Their Own period that are, like, really in the spirit of where Kit probably goes into the future. Mm-hmm. I even think of, you know, Mona Lisa's smile, like, very much gives yes. me kind of, like, a Kit sort of spirit. So, overall, do recommend. We also have some kind of cool surprises that are Kit related that are coming up for 2023. Like, we are not done with her, so Kit is not going anywhere 
And if you liked the scenes of her, like, screaming about newspapers, like, we have good news for you. Yes, more to come on that. (laughs) We're really excited about some experts in the field that we're going to get to talk to. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, so much more kit coverage to come. Um, Say that three times fast. But yeah, we're excited for what's coming next and, you know, keeping going with, you know, all of these different characters. So where are we going next, Allison? We are going to go on kind of an interesting journey at the start of 2023, and we are very much open to your feedback on how we approach these next few characters because they will be new to us. We had a really awesome collaboration with American Girl Women, and we can't wait for you to hear that crossover podcast. We're then going to do the standalone uh, Claudie book, Meet Claudie and American Girl. And we decided to do that because it's going to be a while before the rest of her series comes out, however big that ends up being. But we really are looking forward to covering that and then doing uh, Nenea's book. So we're excited about all of those things. That's what you can expect from us early next year. Very excited for everything that's coming along. And we haven't forgotten about the work episode. We're working on that. And we're doing a lot of different things. We're planning the Patreon. So a lot of fun things coming down the pipeline. And yeah, we're just excited to kind of explore all these new characters. So stay tuned. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at Dolls Lives Pod on Twitter. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can find our website. You can call our hotline. If you are like some of our listeners, you want to sing us a song. We absolutely love that. Mary, where should people find you? Um, I'm like less available than our show, I guess, <laughs> but you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and I'm on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And what about you, Allison? I'm just my first and last name, Allison Horrocks, on all the things, and you can find me there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for being with us on this kit journey. I'm genuinely just so sad that it's over, but also happy that we're going to keep referring back to kit. And just excited for what's next. So thanks for coming along with us. And we will see you on our next episode.